In the early days as a security person, you're told you want to be the gatekeeper. Nobody should be able to launch a product without your approval. That's horrible advice. You have to understand how humans make decisions to really grasp why transparency is so valuable. The goal here is to get a little bit better every day, not to be perfect. And I think that's where many security professionals lose sight of how to operate. Humans have a set point of risk that they're willing to take. If you take risk away from them, they'll engage in more risky behaviors. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. It is a part of the Secure Developer community. Check out thesecuredeveloper.com for great talks and content about developer security and to ask questions and share your knowledge. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Secure Developer. Today, we have uh, a good friend and uh, a CISO that I've had the pleasure of, uh, of being a colleague to, Andy Ellis, who's the Chief Security Officer at Akamai. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Guy. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, Andy, before we dive into the deep details over here, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of the history and, and how you made your way into, uh, into security in the first place? Sure. So I'm the Chief Security Officer of Akamai. I've been here for just over 19 years now. And I got my, my way into security sort of by very roundabout method. I was uh, at MIT working on my degree in theoretical computer science, and I was in the Air Force ROTC program. And for those who aren't familiar with that, that's an officer training program where you get your commission to go into the U.S. Armed Services you know, once you have your degree. And I really wanted to be what's called a weapons systems officer. You might think of it like the navigator on a large plane. It's the, the person who sits in the back seat and provides you know, guidance to the pilot in the front and maybe you get to drop some bombs once in a while. Uh, I couldn't be a pilot because so I didn't have the vision for it. And while I was on my summer, you, know, you go, get to go do these exciting you know, jobs in the summer. And I was down at Luke Air Force Base sitting in the back seat of an F-16. And I get a phone call from this major down in South Carolina, and he's telling me about this new squadron that does information warfare. And I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. Uh, and recognize this is uh, 1996. And this sounds almost like a job interview, which if you've never been in the military, you have to understand, you don't really get job interviews. You just get assigned somewhere. And I was being assigned, and he was just calling to make sure I wasn't completely crazy. I didn't have a choice about whether I took this job or not. They'd already decided. Different uh, world, yeah. Very different world. They were told they could have anybody they wanted in the Air Force. They said, we want everybody graduating from MIT with a computer science degree. Well, that was me. <laughs> so they had to fill in with other folks. And yeah. I showed up, and this was working with a commercial intrusion detection system for people who remember the NetRanger that Cisco bought and Border Guard that was run by Network Systems Group. We were deploying those systems all across the Air Force, and I was responsible for building and configuring and designing the defenses and working with our ops team on how we're going to make these work. Learned an awful lot about security in those years, then you know, came to Akamai a few years later, and I've been doing security here ever since. Interesting. So you basically got assigned into security. You know, I did. Uh, well, it worked out well. 
it has. And, you know, when I came to Akamai, we weren't a security company at the time. We were a, a CDN. We were just barely starting to talk about performance instead of just offload. And so the transition over these 20 years to now a company that is security first, where performance and offload is still part of the value proposition, but from a go-to-market perspective, we lead with security now. Yeah, that definitely is a transition. Also, the size of the company, right? Like how many people are kind of roughly in the in the early days, if you go 18, 19 years yeah. back? Yeah, so when I came in, it was around 500 people or so. We grew to about 1,200 right before the dot-com bubble crashed, came mm. down to 550. So that was uh, not an exciting time. You know, I was in charge of doing all the technical coordination for every layoff. Uh, and now we're back up to about 7,000 people. Okay. So that's also quite a, quite a difference. Not the same job when you're running a CISO for 550 versus, uh, versus yeah. 7,000 people. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. There are things that happen now that I'm like, I used to be the person who did that. And I'd be pulling out my hair to get it done. Mm-hmm. And now I don't even see it happen. And it's running smoothly with you know, folks in different organizations. And to see that maturity grow, it's been actually really nice when I notice it. You know, the trick is to go back and actually notice it. Yeah, sort of see the change. So let's, let's, let's do that a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the security organization and maybe a little bit of its evolution, right? Just so people get a, a, a glance at, at what it looks like in, in different sizes. So can you give us a bit of a rundown of how your, like, you know, you're the CISO, you know, how does your security organization get divided? You know, who does what? So in Akamai, we have a very different structure than I think a lot of other organizations do. Principal operational security responsibility, we embed into operational teams. So mm-hmm. our enterprise security, the folks who are securing our corporate network, actually works for the CIO. We actually spun that off to the CIO organization about 10 years ago on the premise that you know if you're responsible for securing someone's infrastructure and dealing with the alerts coming off of a system, you should be part of the, that operational organization. This is like the incident response elements or or more you mean the sort of the enterprise, like yeah. the employee security and the likes? Yeah, the endpoint detection and response. So selecting what tool is going on to that device and then dealing with the incidents that come out of that, that's happening in our enterprise security team inside the CIO organization. They have a mm-hmm. dotted line to me, but their solid line is directly up to the CIO, who's really responsible for ensuring he's staffing that correctly. And what's amazing is it actually gets more money now that it's not under me than it did when it was under me, because the CIO really does care about that and now has direct control over it. It's not just sort of in this nebulous global infosec pot. Mm-hmm. For our production services, you know, we do very similar things. We often don't have sort of dedicated security teams, as, as you alluded to. We have a NOC that is our global network operations command center, and they do you know, tier one and tier two security work. If there's an alert that says there's a problem with the machine, they're the ones who are going to try to take care of it first, and they'll do the preliminary investigation. If they discover something interesting, of course, they're going to escalate that into an incident. Incidents are all now coordinated again out of the operations team. That's actually a change for us in the last few years. The incident management program at Akamai historically was very engineer-driven. When there was an incident, we would tap a relevant engineer, usually an architect or maybe an engineering manager, and say, look, you're the incident manager, build your incident team, and you're responsible for managing and running the incident end-to-end. 
And that worked really well in our early days. A small organization, it was the same 30 people that you'd sort of tap all the time. But where we have so many different products and technologies now, you'd have people who'd be tapped to run an incident maybe once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. And we found that they didn't know how to run an incident. Like they'd been through the training, but it was their first time you get things wrong. So what we did was we created a new role in our operations team called the incident coordinators. And all that they do is run incidents. Now, they're not supposed to be the technical expert. They're not the decision maker to say, should we do X or should we do Y? But they're the ones who make sure that when that question comes up, it's being made by the right person, that they're thinking about the consequences, they know who to coordinate with. So giving us a sort of professionalism. And then my team backstops them. So the incident coordinators manage almost all of the incidents. My team still handles a few. But we're the ones who are responsible for governing that whole incident process, whether it's a security incident or an incident for anything else. Like My team still does the governance, but more and more we've pushed into the operations teams, the follow-up work, because that's really operational work. You know, our mm-hmm. job is to make sure the safety of the platform is robust. And as the incident process has become you know, less ad hoc and more robust, we're doing less and less of it which makes my team very happy, frankly. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sensing a theme over here. So enterprise security, yeah. what the people running the enterprise infrastructure, the people that handle the sort of incidents and operations also handle the sort of security incidents and operations, and you overlay it and support them over it. Right, and so my organization now really has splits once and then one of those splits a second time. So one split is the sort of product and system security split, versus the go-to-market side of the house. So we have a small team that does research on attacks against customers, uh, publishes those through our state of the internet report. I'll do a small plug for that. Uh, We finally got it out from behind a registration wall, so you can just read it directly. And there, go out and write a number of different things, press engagement. And the goal there is to say, as a security business, we are part of the go-to-market function of the business. So think of it as the sort of product marketing of Akamai, just the security company, not associated to a specific product. So do research, publish, sell, et cetera. In many cases, there's sort of a more of a, an, an advocacy and an education and a reach uh, type yes. of group. It's under under you because under me, the home for security expertise in the company, as opposed to sitting in an advocacy or a sort of a marketing organization or the likes. Right. But we partner closely with the marketing and the sales teams. We backstop you know, our sales organization. If a customer says, why should I trust you? you know, if I send somebody to go talk to them mm-hmm. and say, here's what our controls are, they're just believed more than if a sales engineer tries to tell them the mm-hmm. exact same words. And partly because they do know more, they can go more deeply. So if somebody says, oh, we need a special contract terms. I actually have my own lawyer that works for me that partners with mm-hmm. our legal team. So the legal team are the ones who can approve language, but we're the ones who can translate between what reality is, what a customer is looking for, and what that language will be. It has been fascinating and so successful because what we find is customers just want the assurance. They often don't know how to ask for it. And so if we put somebody who is in the same role on our side in this room with them, we can often get them to assurance and then they're comfortable. And now we're just negotiating language. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you try to get assurance through a language negotiation, you end up in some really dark, ugly corners. 
Yeah. So that's one, one piece of art. So the other piece is really the product and system safety teams. And their job is ensuring our systems are robust and safe, that they operate in the way that we want them to. Um, we split that into uh, one team that focuses on assurance. So they're responsible for a lot of our compliance activities. They'll partner with you know, specific engineering teams on bringing systems up to standards, whether it's PCI or FedRAMP or SOC 2. So it's security with the focus on the compliance. And the other piece of the team is what we call system safety and resilience. And the job of that organization is really to focus much more deeply on given technologies and say, okay, we're launching a new system. How do we know that it's safe? And the evolution that we've done there that is fascinating because we, we can't scale our safety and security architects as fast as the rest of the organization has gone. So while we'll still do very deep partnering on specific products, we've mm -hmm. actually built a system for development teams to self-certify, for them to come in and say, I need to do a security review. What we do is say, look, give us one architect from your organization. We'll hand them a guide that says, here's how you do a security and safety review. They'll do the review with you. You write down your results. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And we'll just vet what you wrote down. So when you go to product launch and everybody looks to us and says, hey, was a security review done? We're just going to answer based on the review you did. Here's the dirty reality that I didn't really understand until much later in my career. Because in the early days as a security person, you're told you want to be the gatekeeper. Nobody should be able to launch a product without your approval. That's horrible advice. Because only one person can choose to launch a product or not, right? It's the CEO of the company who might delegate it to a product vice president or president. But it's not really delegated much below that. Um, and you can't split that, that authority. So I had it for a while. And I remember there was a product that was launching that used MD5 as a checksum on one of their messaging things. And now this was at a time when Nobody should have been using MD5 anymore, at least not for anything new. I think it was right when mm -hmm. the deprecation notice comes out. But you know, we've had better things for quite a while. Um, we weren't quite to the poly 1305 cha-cha-20 world yet, but we were close. Yeah. And I was like, this shouldn't launch because they didn't know enough to even use the right library here. So I'm worried about other things. And literally, the product team say, this is maybe a billion-dollar product. Hint, it wasn't, but that always is what a product yeah, that are engineering people promise. say. Yes. And they're saying, Andy, are you really going to hold it up based on this one thing? And I'm sitting here and everybody's focused on me. And so afterwards, you know, I sat down with our, the president, I said, uh, who have products. I said, look, here's what I'd rather do. I'd rather we tell you if we think they're doing good risk management or not. And you have to decide if the risks are okay, but they have to write them down for you. Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, we can try this. And the very next review came in and they had done what every other review had done, which was shown up and told us like three days before that the review is happening. And can you please review the product? And before we made this change, I would say at the launch meeting, I'd say, well, I don't know enough to tell you if this is safe or not. And everybody would jump on me. Well, how fast can you do your review? We really need to launch this. And it became my fault. And afterwards, I just said, look, I'm going to fail this because they don't know what their risks are. And it was this instant change. The person making the decision said, great, they're not launching. Yeah, because they haven't really done the sort of the review on it. They but haven't done the review. And they, and they were like, wait, what? And people don't come back now unless they've done this review. 
And now we let them do the review. And, you know, there's sort of a, a fox guarding the hen house problem is what everybody who, who I tell this to thinks. They said, oh, my God, well, of course they'll hide things. The reality is developers aren't really interested in hiding things. If I tell you, hey, tell me the unacceptable losses that your system could incur and the hazards, almost every developer is like, yes, let me write this down because I've been wanting to tell somebody what the problems are. Mm-hmm. And it's not saying you can't launch with risk. We're just saying you have to write down what you know your risk is. And then all of a sudden, people are like, ooh, that was really bad. I didn't like writing those words down. (laughs) How do I change this in the next release? And so this iterated engagement around making people accept their own understanding of risk. That's not my problem. It's yours. You're the one who wrote it down. All of a sudden, it has dramatically shifted how people operate. So this is very much in line with sort of, you know, you you kind of, you own it, you secure it uh, type element. How do you overcome the continuous nature or even, you know, more inline security controls or maybe a level of expertise? Because this is the security review. It's a new system. There is a, maybe an opportunity for more comprehensive review, but many yeah. changes happen that way, right? Like many changes happen day to day after that system, you know, inversion, you know, 33.3. Uh, so, how do they get embedded over there? So a piece of the goal is by being part of the original launch process and major changes will go through that. And by forcing people to write down their own risks, it means that when they're the ones who are doing that 33.3 release, and of course, they're not going to tell us everything in it, but mm-hmm. they have now gotten practice at self-reviewing. And even if the normal review model is I write it, you review it, even though you're my partner architect, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm doing that for you. When you write something, I review it. Now when I write something in 33.3, I'm like, maybe I can do a little bit better. Because the goal here is to get a little bit better every day, not to be perfect. And I think that's where many security professionals lose sight of how to operate. Our goal is not perfection. Our goal is not risk elimination. Our goal is to enable our business partners to make wise risk choices because that's what we're in the business to do. We spend money. That's a risk. We might Mm -hmm. not make any money on the other side of it. That's like the very definition of risk. Well, if I can see that you're spending the money badly, oh, like you just grabbed the wrong open source library. Let me help you grab a better one, even if it's not perfect. So we do restrict some things around crypto. We do have rules that say we don't care if you think you can review it yourself. You don't (laughs) get to write your own role, your own crypto. Um, And there are some code lines there that we're very careful about who's allowed to do things, you know, because we're also contributing a lot of our stuff back into open source uh, in that area. So it's not that we're completely, hey, go run it yourself. But our goal is to empower the organization because First of all, we just can't afford as a company to keep trying to buy specialist security architects. I obviously need more than I have. That's a true statement that every uh, CISO exactly. would make, yeah. right? Across, uh, across the organization, across the industry. Yeah, and they don't exist. But if I can take every software architect and enable them to do a better review than would have happened if we tried to centralize it. Because the thing we have to remember is that my architects have to build up a model for your system before they can review it. Your architects already have that model. Mm-hmm. I just have to teach them how to apply security and safety thinking against the model they already have. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think that's the advantage of any 
security embedded into an owner of a system above and beyond the scale, sort of the natural scale element of it. There's just an intrinsic understanding of the thing that is being protected, be it an app or an organization or you know a set of servers that have an incident on them. So drilling one step deeper, you know, uh, so you have that dev team, you know, and they they now understand they need to build the competencies. Oftentimes there is at least two recurring components over here, which is tooling and training. Who runs those, you know, who sort of owns ensuring that people have the right tools at their fingertips and know how to use them uh, above and beyond the sort of the, the the questionnaire, right? Or sort of the review of knowing yeah. which questions to ask. So we own that strategically, but very rarely do we own the implementation. So I'm responsible for identifying, oh, we need a better tool around vulnerability management tracking, right? Mm -hmm. Just to pick a thing that's right now a sort of hot topic. I'm pushing you know, that across the business. I'm partnering with our development tools team. Like we have a team inside engineering that builds tools for the rest of the developers. They're mm -hmm. gonna own whatever we settle on, but I'm the driver for them to say, hey, this is important. You know, we're making this a strategic priority so that we can support all of the development teams across the organization in that one central spot. So you know, I'll develop that. For training, you know, we actually went through this. We had the secure coding training, you know, mm -hmm. across the business. And we went, we, we bought from a couple different vendors, different training packages. And I will tell you, they were universally panned by our engineers. Right? <laughs> they were not happy with yeah. the training. So what I did was, you know, one of the, the people who works for me, Eric Cobrin, who runs our sort of go-to-market function. I think you know Eric, right? He's yeah, he's an awesome. He's an awesome. Yeah. got quite, a, quite an asset inside that can do a lot of those types of right. education sessions. And so Eric put together a secure coding training. And then we've, we've augmented with different people in the team. We built our own secure coding training and our engineers love it, right? We deliver it through our engineering learning organization. So it's not this huge resource drain on my, my team. We don't have to worry about, you know, doing individualized training and scheduling things. You know, we have another org that does it. We just became basically the internal vendor for that training. Mm -hmm. you know, not only does it save the company some money, but it's actually better training that targets our development practices right. instead of something that was sort of more generic from an outside company. Yeah, definitely. Kind of in your settings. And, you know, I, I like the um, making the most out of, out of a different type of skill set that you might have, because maybe unlike some security teams, you have people in the company that looks to educate the world about security. Yeah. Uh, and so you can use that to sort of, uh, you know, aim them internally. Exactly. Got it. So the tooling is done, you know, like it, it's run by the dev teams and it's somewhat central still, but not necessarily the security team. So it's still aligned with the dev right. tooling, but dev tool learn is not team by team. It is somewhat central. And so those teams kind of run the, the security, but still rolls right. along kind of the principle of, of uh, you own it, you secure it. You right. Know. And we'll help you do that. And now I do have my own tooling team, but that is mostly for things that we operate ourselves. So our compliance system actually runs on a dashboard we built ourselves because we went and looked at the whole industry of compliance and we did not like any of the tools that were there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most of them are not designed for people who build their own software as a service platforms where it's not mm -hmm. about, oh, I'm just integrating other people's technology and then I have to turn around and support it. That just really wasn't the model of many of these other programs. So we just built our own. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's fantastic because it, you know, every document has owners. And so we can just say, hey, 
you as an engineering manager, here's the five documents that describe what your system does and how your organization operates. Once a year, please review these. And then we plug them into all of the different compliance frameworks that we support. So when our auditor comes in for PCI, maybe they get four of those five documents. But when they come in for SOC 2, they get a different four based yeah. on what those, those regimes wanted. Yeah, and a lot of it is about managing the data and the compliance uh, bits on it. So a lot of the, the action is still handled by the rest of that org with the consolidation of the status is done by that yep. internal. So let's uh, switch a little bit to the side and talk about visibility. You know, I think you're, uh, you're sort of well known and I've experienced it firsthand, you know, with being in Akamai, that you're, you're quite a sort of transparent, you oftentimes tout, you know, sort of visibility and, uh, and transparency and security, which is... You know, it's not the default case for many, many people in security. There's a lot of, uh, hey, don't tell them, uh, you know, don't sort of share anything. Uh, yep. Can you share a little bit your perspective? I mean, how do, you, how do you balance, you know, transparency and what value do you see there with, you know, maybe the risks associated with maybe showing the weaknesses, right? Or sort of, you know, showing where are the holes? Yeah, so it's a really fascinating topic because you have to understand how humans make decisions to really grasp why transparency is so valuable. Because uh, it's not about trust, although trust is a wonderful thing you get when you're open and transparent. Mm-hmm. Humans have a sort of set point of risk that they're willing to take. Uh, this is sometimes called risk compensation uh, or the Peltzman effect named after an economist, uh, Sam Peltzman. And it basically says if you give someone more risk, they will automatically retract from it. And, and do things to compensate and reduce their risk. If you take risk away from them, they'll engage in more risky behaviors because there's an aggregate amount of risk that they want to take. Mm-hmm. This really came into the popular imagination in the 80s in the United States when we were debating national seatbelt laws. And Sam Peltzman said, look, if you make everybody wear a seatbelt, it's a safety device that will make them feel safer so they will drive more dangerously which means that while they'll be safer in an accident, accidents will happen at higher speeds, they'll kill more pedestrians. If you want to have fun, go look up the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration data for the last 40 years and look at the fatality rates per mile driven for drivers, passengers, pedestrians, and motorcyclists. It turns out Sam Peltzman was wrong. Motorcyclists bear the brunt. of increased safety systems because they can't get safer, but the cars have shifted from driving 60 miles an hour normally to driving 90 miles an hour. And so once you really grok that, that humans react to knowledge and awareness of risk, it explains why you want to be transparent. If you have a system and you say to me, hey, Andy, is my system safe to launch? First of all, this is a setup because you're launching no matter whether I say yes or no. But let's say you hand it to me and I go and I can spend however much time and create a laundry list of a thousand things that are wrong with your application. And they'll range from minor details to massive things like there's data breaches waiting to happen or worse, you know, lives that you might actually just you know, lose yeah. if this you know, gets tickled. But I know about them and you don't. And you're the decision maker. So I've taken all of this risk that you should know about and you know, maybe it would be simple if you said, look, I'm just not going to sell this to healthcare because I can't afford the life safety issues, right? If you knew all these risks, you might say, you know, this is a great app that I'm going to you know, try out with my startup, but I'm going to target 
you know, just whatever my niche market is, where if I fail, nobody's life is lost. And I'm going to tell my sales reps, you know, you are not allowed to sell to a medical provider or to critical services or whatever it is. But if I know those risks and you don't, you'll just go ahead and sell to them. And it's not that you're being reckless. You don't know. So my being transparent is all about enabling the people who are day-to-day making these decisions, choices about risk, enabling them to make those in the context of the world they live in, that they Mm -hmm. shouldn't walk through the world with blinders. And security professionals who are not transparent are literally putting blinders on their business partners and then getting angry when the business partner walks into a dangerous situation. Fascinating. I, I love when the sort of the human philosophy uh, really is what drives activities and drive those reasonings. You see yeah. this a lot in the DevOps scene, right? A lot of it around incidents, around response. It really boils down to how do you expect humans to react when you put them in a yeah. And the thing I love about DevOps, and I argue that Akamai was DevOps before DevOps was a cool thing. The most important thing is that when a system breaks, the person who built it is on the hook to do the incident and fix it. The value that that gives you is that they now have a personal incentive to reduce the safety risk of the system. They don't Mm -hmm. want to be called in an incident. If you have somebody who can push a change at 5 p.m. and walk out the door and somebody else has to absorb the cost of that breaking, what's ever going to stop them from pushing a change at 5 p.m.? But if they push it, they walk out the door and I call them and say, get back in the building. And you have to fix this or get on your laptop. I don't care that you're having dinner. You broke it. You have to help fix it. They will self-decide to stop pushing changes at 5 p.m. and walking out the door. Or they'll figure out how to make those more safely. Or they'll implement controls that will automatically do rollback. I don't have to tell them how to solve the problem. I just have to expose them to the real risk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, kind of aligned very much with the perspective of own the risk, see the risk own the remediation, be able to do yeah. something at risk. I think you really tagged them with own the remediation. That This is something I learned from uh, one of the people who works for me, Catherine Kuhn, who runs our adversarial resilience team. She pointed out a long time ago that there is a never-ending list of good work available to be done and that we shouldn't pick for someone. If I have 12 things that I would love for you to do, and I know you can only do one of them, I shouldn't pick the, the one that matters the most. You know, maybe I trim it down. I say, hey, guy, here's these four big problems that your organization is wrestling with. You really need to solve one of these. Mm-hmm. You can pick any one of the four, and I am happy. And now it's your project, not my project. Whereas if I walk in and I've picked one, you are just going to resist it naturally, no matter how much you care about the organization, because you're not in part of the decision. You didn't own it. I owned it. Mm-hmm. So I give you four, you pick one. Now look how transparent I am. I'll tell you about a whole bunch of problems in your organization in a way that is non-confrontational. I'm not saying here's four things, you have to fix them all right now. Yep, like, you give me choice. Yeah, give you some choice. Not to belittle it, but I'm always astounded sometimes on how the same philosophies apply to a 7,000 person organization and uh, and your kids, you know, because I feel yes. like basically it's, it's the same and it boils down to the fact that it's human principles, right? You know, but my... Uh, my, my daughter is, you know, is awesome and amazing and quite opinionated. And that same strategy works wonders, you know, of sort of saying, here are four options, pick one. But it boils down to that there's just an epitome of the same humans that, that we are, you know, 40, 50 years later. We think we're a little bit different and maybe we are a little bit more rational about it, but at the same incentives work at the core. 
Well, and the way that I think about it is, and it's not a belittling. I think people often do this. They say, look, I, I learned how to manage people from parenting, raising my children. And what people often hear is, oh, I'm treating my employees like children. No, it's actually, if you're a great parent, you recognize that your job is to create amazing adults. And it's treating your children like children that causes problems. And it's treating your employees like children that causes problems. Yeah. Right? If you say to your kid, look, I get this all the time where my kids will be hungry and I'll fall into the trap of saying, well, why don't you eat X? I don't want X. Well, why don't you eat Y? I don't like Y. Why don't you? And each thing, there's a mm-hmm. reason they don't like it. But if I say, oh, you're hungry. Well, you could have X, Y, Z or W or go pick something else. I don't care. All of a sudden, they, now they're like, oh, Y sounds great. I'll just go do that. And that's the exact same philosophy. I actually treated the child like an adult. I said, you have to feed yourself. Here's your list of choices. Make your decision. Whereas only giving them one at a time is treat them like a child. They reject it. Why are we surprised that adults reject that if even a 13-year-old is smart enough to reject it? Indeed. This is an awesome conversation. I think uh, we're, we're going long, which is not that atypical. <laughs> But I think, um, uh, let me try to squeeze just sort of a short answer on something that I think is a, is a specific perspective on Akamai. So, you know, as I, as I run this podcast or in general, you have conversations, a lot of uh, a good practice that emerges is this desire to turn good security into a business value proposition to sort of promote this. You know, we've had, you know, in Slack, for instance, you know, they somewhat recently launched some good security features and they talked about, you know, made a lot of business noise around it, right? Around as a commercial. Yep. For Akamai, that's that's kind of at its core, right? You know, being secure is very much a, a key selling feature as a, at, at its root. How well aligned do you feel, you know, just kind of at high level, the internal security, like the things that you see and you want to prioritize from a risk reduction internally versus maybe the commercially uh, friendly promote the business value of being secure? So I think they're really well aligned. And I think I'll, I'll talk about the business value. There's two different things, right? There's being secure and there's selling security. And I think mm-hmm. we often mix those up. There are things that we do that the only reason that we do this is to protect the customer or to protect the customer's end user or to protect the whole platform. And there's never really significant arguments about the importance of doing that work. You know, mm-hmm. like any important work, you obviously always face trade-offs. I'm not saying we do it perfectly. Yeah. But I very rarely see people say, oh, that's not important. In fact, it's really easy to say, look, we have customers who care about PCI or SOC 2 or IRAP or Fed or, 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 I can just keep listing them. And that's why we're even having this conversation. Mm -hmm. It used to be that people would say, well, maybe I'll just sell this to the customers who don't care about PCI. That conversation used to happen. Very rarely happens anymore. Yeah. Right now we talk about when we're doing an acquisition, like how fast can we bring it into that secure envelope? And yes, I don't love using that compliance is the conversation starter every time, but it's a great conversation starter. It works. Mm -hmm. It gets people in the door. Now there's a pivot, which is how do you sell security? Like at the end of the day, the fact that we're PCI compliant makes certain sales processes easier, but it's probably not really bringing in new revenue. You know, it might give us a small bump in you know, the annual retail price per unit mm. or average, sorry. But then there's products that we sell that are about security. And what's interesting to look at there is if I look back at sort of our most successful ones, 
often are ones that we originally thought about to protect ourselves. That we said, oh, we have you know customers under DDoS attack. How do we make sure we never go down from a DDoS? And at some point we looked and said, wow, we have a better DDoS defense platform than anybody who's selling it commercially. Why don't we just sell it commercially? Right. And that now lets you you take that and sell a security product or you know, our VPN replacement that we built for ourselves. We were breached in 2009, built a VPN replacement service over the next 10 years, cleaned up a lot of our authentication, and now we're selling that on the market. Like this was a technology built on our platform because we had it available that when we first started building it, we had no intention of selling it. It wasn't even a dream, but it was lined up to our own needs. And it turns out many companies have the same problem. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's great. You know, it's like, you know, it's tried and true and it works, right? You know, potentially, yep. I don't know if it's how much of this is urban legend, but presumably sort of AWS and maybe the inception of the cloud has kind of come from that same premise, right? Of, uh, exactly. of Amazon sort of using its its own sort of underlying systems and just sort of just, you know, I'm sure there was some, some significant work involved in that, you know, as there is in kind of converting internal tools into uh, into commercial ones. But still, you know, you know the premise works. You're not guessing. Yep. Fascinating, you know. And I think, and I love, I love this uh, positive conversation starter perspective on compliance, compliance and regulations. There's a lot of goodness. There's a lot of badness. And there's a lot of complexity over there. But what you can be sure is that it starts conversations. You know, especially uh, GDPR recently. Really, you know, some people hate it, some people love it. But what you can't argue is that it it rocked the boat. You know, it, it triggered a whole bunch of conversations that would not have happened otherwise. And for that, I love it. You know, sort of, I love the fact that it that it happened. Yeah, and I think we're going to see the same thing with CCPA. It's going to drive a lot of those conversations too. Absolutely, absolutely. So before I let you go, just uh, one one quick last question I like to ask every guest on the show. If you had one bit of advice, one tip, it, it could just be like a pet peeve, I think, that's currently annoying you that people do, to give a team that wants to level up their security uh, foo, what would that be? I have one simple rule which is nobody is the villain in their own story. And if you're having an encounter with a business partner, whether you're the development team or the security team, and you're telling a story that says this person is bad, they have bad motivations, they're trying to hurt me, whatever it is, just stop. They have different motivations than you. They have a different model of the world, but odds are they have the same ultimate goal you have, which is, uh, if you work in a for-profit company or in a startup that would like to be for-profit, is mm-hmm. to make money. That's their goal. They might see different risks than you do, but you can't learn from somebody who's a villain. So if you tell the story that they're a villain, you have just prevented yourself from learning what matters to them. And once you start learning what matters to them, you can channel them. Uh, I was just talking to one, you know, one of my staff who was in a meeting. He said, it was this really weird thing that you know, this, the person on the business side was making these continuous jokes about the places we were going to disagree. That he would make a statement and say, oh, and here's where so-and-so is going to chime in and say, this is unsafe. And I said, this is perfect. It means they have a mental model of you that's accurate, that they actually saw the unsafe thing before you pointed it out. And that's great. It means they don't see you as a villain. They might see you as, a, as somebody you're, they're struggling with but you're struggling together. You both care. They want to be part of it. So don't tell the story in which the other person's a villain because it's too easy to do. Like I can take almost any interaction and tell a story about the other person being a villain. 
But as soon as I do, I lose the opportunity for my own improvement. Because instead I can say, how do I act like they do? How would other people see me in that same light? Maybe I can improve based on my own gut reaction you know, that was negative. It's a brilliant advice. And I love, uh, love both the sort of the, the catchphrase and kind of the whole substance behind it, around it. I think it's useful probably as a, as a well beyond security. This has been thanks. spectacular, Andy. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. No problem. And, thanks for having me. And thanks to everybody who tuned in. And I hope you join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or get involved in this community, find us at thesecuredeveloper.com or on Twitter at thesecuredev. Visit heavybit.com to find additional episodes, full transcriptions, and other great podcasts. See you next time.